This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Britt Ashley Randolph, Shelby Carter, Gasmasher, Hannah Johnson, and Joanna McNamara. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of making this show. For those of you who don't know, the names that I just read are new patrons on Patreon.com which is this awesome site where you can go on and support creators that you appreciate. So you donate a dollar, two dollars, five dollars a month. Five dollars a month with the Sleepy Podcast gets you access to a special Patreon poetry feed where I send you poetry readings twice a month just for donating. Every dollar goes a really, really long way. And as soon as you donate, we'll read your name right in the opening credits of the show. Patreon is also a really great place to reach out to me if you want to just say hey or ask questions about the making of the show. So if you feel like supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio or just drop in and say hey. 
As always, the music for this show is done by James Lepkowski, and the cover art is by Gracie Kanan. Tonight is our 52nd episode. That's a whole year's worth of Sleepy. How insane is that? And I was thinking about kind of like what my favorite books have been in the last year. Because for me, I'm discovering a lot of books just by making this show. I was wondering kind of what are my favorites that I've been looking back on. Sherlock Holmes was definitely one of them. Uh, The Invisible Man. I really liked reading Tom Sawyer and Frankenstein is an incredible book. Wow. Mary Shelley's writing is absolutely unbelievable while still being a good book to fall asleep to. But I would have to say I think one of my favorites that surprised me is Moby Dick by Herman Melville. So tonight I'm actually going to pick up where we left off almost a full year ago when we were reading Moby Dick. It's just beautiful writing and a lot of people say that it's a boring book which when I started reading it seemed absolutely crazy because I think it's a beautiful story it's really well written but it is also pretty nice to snooze to so tonight the story of the white whale and Captain Ahab and Ishmael and Queequeg Moby Dick by Herman Melville So get real comfortable. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Chapter 13 Next morning, Monday, after disposing of the embalmed head to a barber for a block, I settled my own and my comrade's bill, using, however, my comrade's money. The grinning landlord, as well as the boarders, seemed amazingly tickled at the sudden friendship which had sprung up between me and Queequeg, especially as Peter Coffin's cock-and-bull stories about him had previously so much alarmed me concerning the very person whom I am now accompanied with. We borrowed a wheelbarrow, and embarking our things, including my own poor carpet bag and Queequeg's canvas sack and hammock, away we went, down to the moss, the little Nantucket packet schooner moored at the wharf. As we were going along, the people stared. Not at Queequeg so much, for they were used to seeing cannibals like him in their streets, but at seeing him and me upon such confidential terms. But we heeded them not. Going along, wheeling the barrow by turns, and Queequeg now and then stopping to adjust the sheath on his harpoon barbs. I asked him why he carried such a troublesome thing with him ashore, and whether all whaling ships did not find their own harpoons. To this, in substance, he replied that though what I hinted was true enough, 
yet he had a particular affection for his own harpoon because it was assured stuff, well tried in many a mortal combat and deeply intimate with the hearts of whales. In short, like many inland reapers and mowers who go to the farmer's meadows armed with their own scythes, though in no wise obliged to furnish them, even so, Queequeg, for his own private reasons, preferred his own harpoon. Shifting the barrel from my hand to his, he told me a funny story about the first wheelbarrow he had ever seen. It was in Sag Harbor. The owners of his ship, it seems, had lent him one in which to carry his heavy chest to his boarding house. Not to seem ignorant about the thing, though in truth he was so entirely so, concerning the precise way in which to manage the barrow. Queequeg puts his chest upon it, lashes it fast, and then shoulders the barrow and marches up the wharf. Why, said I, Queequeg, you might have known better than that, one would think. Didn't the people laugh? Upon this he told me another story. The people of his island of Cocoboco, it seems, at their wedding feast expressed the fragrant water of young coconuts into large stained calabash like a punch bowl, and this punch bowl always forms the great central ornament on the braided map where the feast is held. Now a certain grand merchant ship once touched at Cocoboco, and its commander, from all accounts, a very stately, punctilious gentleman, at least for a sea captain, his commander was invited to the wedding feast of Queequeg's sister, a pretty young princess, just turned of ten. Well, when all the wedding guests were assembled at the bride's bamboo cottage, this captain marches in, and being assigned the post of honor, placed himself over against a punch bowl, and between the high priest and his majesty the king, Queequeg's father, grace being said for those people have their grace as well as we though Queequeg told me that unlike us who at such times look downwards to our platters they on the contrary copying the ducks glance upward to the great river of all feasts grace I say being said the high priest opens the banquet up by the immemorial ceremony of the island that is dipping his consecrated and consecrating fingers into the bowl before the blessed beverage circulates. Seeing himself placed next to the priest and noting the ceremony and thinking himself being captain of a ship as having plain precedence over a mere island king, especially in the king's own house, the captain coolly proceeds to wash his hands in the punch bowl taking it, I suppose, for a huge finger glass. Now, said Queequeg, what you think now? Didn't our people laugh? Alas, passage paid, and luggage safe. We stood on board the schooner, hoisting sail and gliding down the Akushna River. On one side, New Bedford rose in terrace of streets, 
their ice-covered trees all glittering in the clear, cold air. Huge hills and mountains of casks on casks were piled upon her wharves, and side by side the world-wandering whale-ships lay silent and softly moored at last. While from others came the sound of carpenters and coopers, with blended noises of fires and forges to melt the pitch, all betokening that new cruises were on the start, that one most perilous and long voyage ended only begins a second, and a second ended only begins a third, and so on, forever and for I. Such is the endlessness, yea, the intolerableness of all earthly effort. Gaining the more open water, the bracing breeze waxed fresh. The little moss tossed the quick foam from her bows as a young colt his snortings. How I snuffed that tartar air. How I spurned that turnpike earth. A common highway all over dented with the marks of slavish heels and hooves and turned me to admire the magnanimity of the sea which will permit no records. At the same foam fountain, Queequeg seemed to drink the reel with me. His dusky nostrils swelled apart, and he showed his filed, pointed teeth. On, on we flew, and our offing gained. The moss did homage to the blast, ducked and dived her brows as a slave before the sultan. Sideways leaning, we sideways darted, every rope yarn tingling like a wire, the two tall masts buckling like Indian canes and land tornadoes. So full of this reeling scene were we, as we stood by the plunging bowsprit, that for some time we did not notice the jeering glances of the passengers, a lubber-like assembly, who marveled that two fellow beings should be so companionable, as though a white man were anything more dignified than a whitewashed negro. But there were some boobies and bumpkins there. Must have come from the heart and center of all verdure. Queequeg caught one of these young saplings, mimicking him behind his back. I thought the bumpkin's hour of doom was come. Dropping his harpoon, the brawny savage caught him in his arms, and by an almost miraculous dexterity and strength, sent him high up, bodily, into the air, and slightly tapping his stern in mid-somerset, the fellow landed with bursting lungs upon his feet, while Queequeg, turning his back on him, lighted his tomahawk pipe and passed it to me for a puff. Captain, Captain, yelled the bumpkin, running toward the officer. Captain, Captain, here's the devil. Hello, you sir, cried the captain, a gaunt rib of the sea, stalking up to Queequeg. What in thunder do you mean by that? Don't you know you might have killed that chap? What him say, said Queequeg, as he mildly turned to me. He say, said I, that you came near Killy, that man there, pointing to the shivering greenhorn. Killy, cried Queequeg, 
twisting his tattooed face into an unearthly expression of disdain. Ha, ah, him bevy smally fishy. Queequeg no killy smally fishy. Queequeg killy big whale. Look you, roared the captain. I'll killy you, you cannibal. If you try any more of your tricks aboard here, so mind your eye. But it so happened just then that it was high time for the captain to mind his own eye. The prodigious strain upon the mainsail had parted the weather sheet, and the tremendous boom was now flying from side to side, completely sweeping the entire after part of the deck. The poor fellow whom Queequeg had handled so roughly was swept overboard. All hands were in a panic, and to attempt snatching at the boom to stay it seemed madness. It flew from right to left, and back again, almost in one ticking of a watch, and every instant seemed on the point of snapping into splinters. Nothing was done, and nothing seemed capable of being done. Those on deck rushed toward the bows, and stood eyeing the boom as if it were the lower jaw of an exasperated whale. In the midst of his consternation, Queequeg dropped deathly to his knees, and crawling under the path of the boom, whipped hold of a rope, secured one end to the bulwarks, and then flinging over like a lasso, caught it round the boom as it swept over his head. And at the next jerk, the spar was that way trapped, and all was safe. The schooner was run into the wind, and while the hands were clearing away the stern bow, Queequeg, stripped of the waist, darted from the side with a long, living arc of a leap. For three minutes or more, he was seen swimming like a dog, throwing his long arms straight out before him, and by turns revealing his brawny shoulders through the freezing foam. I looked at the grand and glorious fellow, but saw no one to be saved. The greenhorn had gone down, Shooting himself perpendicularly from the water, Queequeg now took an instant's glance around him, and seeming to see how matters were, dived down and disappeared. A few minutes more he rose again, one arm still striking out, and with the other dragging a lifeless form. The boat soon picked him up. The poor bumpkin was restored. All hands voted Queequeg a noble trump. The captain begged his pardon. From that hour, I clove to Queequeg like a barnacle. Yea, till poor Queequeg took his long, last dive. Was there ever such unconsciousness? He did not seem to think that he had all deserved a medal from the humane and magnanimous societies. He only asked for water, fresh water, something to wipe the brine off. That done, he put on dried clothes, lighted his pipe, and leaning against the bulwarks and mildly eyeing those around him, seemed to be saying to himself, it's a mutual joint stock world in all meridians.
We cannibals must help these Christians. Chapter 14, Nantucket. Nothing more happened on the passage worthy of mentioning. So, after a fine run, we safely arrived in Nantucket. Nantucket, take out your map and look at it. See what a real corner of the world it occupies. How it stands there, away offshore, more lonely than the Eddystone Lighthouse. Look at it. A mere hillock, an elbow of sand, all beach, without a background. There's more sand there than you would use in 20 years as a substitute for blotting paper. Some games and whites will tell you that they have to plant weeds there. They don't grow naturally. That they import Canadian thistles. That they have to send beyond seas for a spy on the stop, a leak in an oil cask. The pieces of wood in Nantucket are carried about like bits of the true cross of Rome. The people there plant toadstools before their houses to get under the shade in the summertime. That one blade of grass makes an oasis. Three blades in a day's walk a prairie. That they wear quicksand shoes, something like Laplander snowshoes. That they are so shut up, belted about, every way enclosed, surrounded, and made an utter island of by the ocean, that to their very chairs and tables small clams will sometimes be found adhering as to the backs of sea turtles. But these extravaganzas only show that in Nantucket there's no Illinois. Looking out at the wondrous traditional story of how this island was settled by the red men, Thus goes the legend. In olden times, an eagle swooped down upon the New England coast and carried off an infant Indian in his talons. With loud lament, the parents saw their child born out of sight over the wide waters. They resolved to follow in the same direction, setting out in their canoes. After a perilous passage, they discovered the island and there they found an empty ivory casket, the poor little Indian skeleton. What wonder, then, that these Nantucketers, born on a beach, should take to the sea for a livelihood. They first caught crabs and quahogs in the sand. Growing bolder, they waded out with nets for mackerel. More experienced, they pushed off in boats and captured cod. And at last, launching a navy of great ships on the sea, explored this watery world, put an incessant belt of circumnavigations around it, peeped in at the Bering Straits, and in all seasons and all oceans declared everlasting war with the mightiest animated mass that has survived the flood, most monstrous and most mountainous that Himalayan salt sea mastodon clothed with such portentousness of unconscious power that his very panics are more to be dreaded than his most fearless and malicious assault. And thus 
of these naked Nantucketers, these sea hermits, issuing from their anthill in the sea, overrun and conquered the watery world like so many Alexanders, parceling out among them the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian Oceans, as the three pirate powers did Poland. Let America add Mexico to Texas and pile Cuba upon Canada. Let the English overswarm all India and hang out their blazing banner from the sun. Two-thirds of this terraculous globe are the Nantucketers. For the sea is his. He owns it. As emperor's own empires. Other seamen having but a right of way through it. Merchant ships are but extension bridges. Armed ones but flowing forts. Even pirates and privateers, though following the sea as highwaymen, the road, they put plunder on other ships, other fragrance of the land like themselves, without seeking to draw their living from the bottomless deep itself. The Nantucketer, he alone resides and riots on the sea. He alone, in Bible language, goes down to it in ships, to and fro plowing it as his own special plantation. There is his home. There lies his business, which a Noah's flood would not interrupt, though it overwhelmed all millions in China. He lives on the sea, as prairie cocks in the prairie. He hides among the waves. He climbs them as chamois hunters climb the Alps. For years he knows not the land, so that when he comes to it at last, it smells like another world, more strangely than the moon would to an earthsman. With a landless gull that at sunset folds her wings as rock to sleep between billows, so at nightfall the Nantucketer, out of sight of land, furls his sails and lays him to rest. While under his very pillow rush herds of walruses and whales. Chapter 15 Chowder It was quite late in the evening when the little moss came snugly to anchor, and Queequeg and I went ashore so we could attend to no business that day, at least none but a supper in bed. The landlord of the Spouter Inn had recommended us to his cousin, Jose Jose, of the Tripods, whom he asserted to be the proprietor of one of the best-kept hotels in all Nantucket. And moreover, he assured us that his cousin Jose, as he called him, was famous for his chowders. In short, he plainly hinted that we could not possibly do better than try potluck at the Tripods but the directions he had given us about keeping a yellow warehouse on our starboard hand till we opened a white church to the larboard, and then keeping that on the larboard hand till we made a corner three points to the starboard. And that done, then asked the first man we met there where the place was. These crooked directions of his very much puzzled us at first, especially as, at the outset, Queequeg insisted that the yellow warehouse 
Our first point of departure must be left on the larboard hand. Or as I had understood Peter Coffin to say, it was on the starboard. However, by dint of beating about a little in the dark, and now and then knocking up a peaceable inhabitant to inquire the way, we at last came to something which there would be no mistaking. Two enormous wooden pots, painted black and suspended by asses' ears, swung from the cross trees of an old topmast, planted in front of an old doorway. The horns of the cross trees were sawed off on the other side, so that this old topmast looked like a little gallows. Perhaps I was oversensitive to such impressions at the time, but I could not help staring at this gallows with a vague misgiving. A sort of crick was in my neck as I gazed up to the two remaining horns. Yes, two of them. One for Queequeg and one for me. It's ominous, thinks I. A coffin, my innkeeper, upon landing in my first whaling port. Tombstone staring back at me in the whaleman's chapel. And here a gallows. And a pair of prodigious black pots, too. Are these last throwing out but oblique hints touching Tophet? I was called from these reflections by the sight of a freckled woman with yellow hair and a yellow gown standing in the porch of the inn, under a dull red lamp swinging there that looked much like an injured eye, and carrying a brisk scolding of a man in a purple woolen shirt. Get along with you, she said to the man, or I'll be combing you. Come on, said Queequeg, said I. All right, there's Miss Hussey. And so it turned out, Mr. Hussey Hussey, being from home, believing Miss Hussey entirely competent to attend to all his affairs. Upon making known her desires for supper and a bed, Mrs. Hussey, postponing further scolding for the present, ushered us into a little room, and seating us at a table spread with relics of a recently concluded repast, turned round to us and said, Clam or cod? What's that about cods, ma'am? said I, with much politeness. Clam or cod, she repeated. A clam for supper. A cold clam. Is that what you mean, Miss Hussey? says I. That's a rather cold and clammy reception in the winter time, ain't it, Miss Hussey? But being in a great hurry to resume scolding the man in the purple shirt, who was waiting for it in the entry, and seeming to hear nothing but the word clam, Miss Hussey hurried towards the open door leading to the kitchen, bawling out, clam for two, disappeared. Queequeg, said I, do you think that we can make out a supper for us both on one clam? However, a warm, savory steam from the kitchen served to belie the apparently cheerless prospect before us. But when that smoking chowder came in, the mystery was delightfully explained. Oh, sweet friends, hearken to me, 
It was made of small, juicy clams, scarcely bigger than hazelnuts, mixed with pounded chip biscuit and salted pork cut up into little flakes. The whole enriched with butter and plentifully seasoned with pepper and salt. Our appetites being sharpened by the frosty voyage, and in particular, Queequeg seeing his favorite fishing food before him, and the chowder being surpassingly excellent, we dispatched it with great expedition. When leaning back a moment, and bethinking me of Mrs. Hussey's clam and cod announcement, I thought I caught with great emphasis and resumed my seat. In a few moments the savory steam came forth again, but with a different flavor, and a good time of fine cod chowder was placed before us. We resumed business, and while plying our spoons in the bowl, thinks I to myself, I wonder now if this here has any effect on the head. What's that stultifying saying about chowder-headed people? But look, Queequeg, ain't that a live eel in your bowl? Where's your harpoon? Fishiest of all fishy places with the tripods, which well deserved its name. For the pots, there were always boiling chowders. Chowder for breakfast, chowder for dinner, chowder for supper, till you began to look for fish bones coming through your clothes. The area before the house was paved with clamshells. His hussy wore a polished necklace of codfish vertebra, and Hosey Hussey had his account books bound in superior old sharkskin. There was a fishy flavor to the milk, too, though I could not at all account for, till one morning happening to take a stroll along the beach among some fishermen's boats, I saw Hosey's brindled cow feeding on fish remnants and marching along the sand with each foot in a cod's decapitated head, looking very slipshod, I assure you. Supper concluded, we received a lamp and directions from Miss Hussey concerning the nearest way to bed. But as Queequeg was about to precede me up the stairs, the lady reached forth her arm and demanded his harpoon. She allowed no harpoon in her chambers. Why not, said I. Every true whaleman sleeps with his harpoon, but why not? Because it's dangerous, says she. Ever since young Stig's coming from that unfortunate voyage of his, when he was gone four years and a half, with only three barrels of isle, and found dead in my first floor back, with his harpoon in his side. Ever since then I allow no warders to take such dangerous weapons in their rooms at night. So, Mr. Queequeg, for she had learned his name, I will just take this here iron and keep it for you till morning. But the chowder, clam or cod tomorrow for breakfast, men. Both, says I, and let's have a couple of smoked herring by way of variety. Chapter 13 Next morning, Monday, after disposing of the embalmed head to a barber, 
for a block. I settled my own and my comrade's bill, using, however, my comrade's money. The grinning landlord, as well as the boarders, seemed amazingly tickled at the sudden friendship which had sprung up between me and Queequeg, especially as Peter Coffin's cock-and-bull stories about him had previously so much alarmed me concerning the very person whom I am now accompanied with. We borrowed a wheelbarrow, and embarking our things, including my own poor carpet bag and Queequeg's canvas sack and hammock, Away we went, down to the moss, the little Nantucket packet schooner moored at the wharf. As we were going along, the people stared, not at Queequeg so much, for they were used to seeing cannibals like him in their streets, but at seeing him and me upon such confidential terms. But we heeded them not, going along wheeling the barrow by turns, and Queequeg now and then stopping to adjust the sheath on his harpoon barbs. I asked him why he carried such a troublesome thing with him ashore, and whether all whaling ships did not find their own harpoons. To this, in substance, he replied that though what I hinted was true enough, yet he had a particular affection for his own harpoon, because it was assured stuff well tried in many a mortal combat, and deeply intimate with the hearts of whales. In short, like many inland reapers and mowers who go to the farmer's meadows armed with their own scythes, though in no wise obliged to furnish them, even so, Queequeg, for his own private reasons, preferred his own harpoon. Shifting the barrel, from my hand to his, he told me a funny story about the first wheelbarrow he had ever seen. It was in Sag Harbor. The owners of his ship, it seems, had lent him one, in which to carry his heavy chest to his boarding house. Not to seem ignorant about the thing, though in truth he was so entirely so, concerning the precise way in which to manage the barrow. Queequeg puts his chest upon her, lashes it fast, and then shoulders the barrow and marches up the wharf. Why, said I, Queequeg, you might have known better than that, one would think. Didn't the people laugh? Upon this he told me another story. The people of his island of Cocoboco, it seems, at their wedding feast expressed the fragrant water of young coconuts into large stained calabash like a punch bowl, and this punch bowl always forms the great central ornament on the braided map where the feast is held. Now a certain grand merchant ship once touched at Cocoboco, and its commander, from all accounts, a very stately, punctilious gentleman, at least for a sea captain, his commander was invited to the wedding feast, of Queequeg's sister, a pretty young princess, just turned of ten. Well, when all the wedding guests were assembled at the bride's bamboo cottage, this captain marches in, and being assigned the post of honor, placed himself over against a punch bowl, 
and between the high priest and his majesty the king, Queequeg's father. Grace being said, for those people have their grace as well as we, though Queequeg told me that unlike us, who at such times look downwards to our platters, they, on the contrary, copying the ducks, glance upward to the great river of all feasts. Grace, I say, being said, the high priest opens the banquet up by the immemorial ceremony of the island, that is, dipping his consecrated and consecrating fingers into the bowl before the blessed beverage circulates. Seeing himself placed next to the priest and noting the ceremony and thinking himself being captain of a ship as having plain precedence over a mere island king, especially in the king's own house, the captain coolly proceeds to wash his hands in the punch bowl, taking it, I suppose, for a huge finger glass. Now, said Queequeg, what you think now? Didn't our people laugh? Alas, passage paid, and luggage safe. We stood on board the schooner, hoisting sail and gliding down the Acushnet River. On one side, New Bedford rose in terrace of streets, their ice-covered trees all glittering in the clear, cold air. Huge hills and mountains of casks on casks were piled upon her wharves, and side by side the world-wandering whale-ships lay silent and softly moored at last. While from others came a sound of carpenters and coopers, with blended noises of fires and forges to melt the pitch, all betokening that new cruises were on the start, that one most perilous and long voyage ended only begins a second, and a second ended only begins a third, and so on, forever and for I. Such is the endlessness, yea, the intolerableness of all earthly effort. Gaining the more open water, the bracing breeze waxed fresh, the little moss tossed the quick foam from her bows as a young colt his snortings. How I snuffed that tartar air, how I spurned that turnpike earth, a common highway all over dented with the marks of slavish heels and hooves, and turned me to admire the magnanimity of the sea which will permit no records. At the same foam fountain, Queequeg seemed to drink the reel with me. His dusky nostrils swelled apart, and he showed his filed, pointed teeth. On, on we flew, and our offing gained. The moss did homage to the blast, ducked and dived her brows as a slave before the sultan. Sideways leaning, we sideways darted, every rope yarn tingling like a wire, the two tall masts buckling like Indian canes and land tornadoes. So full of this reeling scene were we, as we stood by the plunging bowsprit, that for some time we did not notice the jeering glances of the passengers, a lover-like assembly, who marveled that two fellow beings should be so companionable, as though a white man were anything 
more dignified than a whitewashed Negro. But there were some boobies and bumpkins there. Must have come from the heart and center of all Verdure. Queequeg caught one of these young saplings, mimicking him behind his back. I thought the bumpkin's hour of doom was come. Dropping his harpoon, the brawny savage caught him in his arms, and by an almost miraculous dexterity and strength, sent him high up, bodily, into the air, and slightly tapping his stern in mid-somerset, the fellow landed with bursting lungs upon his feet, while Queequeg, turning his back on him, lighted his tomahawk pipe and passed it to me for a puff. Captain, Captain, yelled the bumpkin, running toward the officer. Captain, Captain, here's the devil. Hello, you sir, cried the captain, a gaunt rib of the sea, stalking up to Queequeg. What in thunder do you mean by that? Don't you know you might have killed that chap? What him say, said Queequeg, as he mildly turned to me. He say, said I, that you came near Killy, that man there, pointing to the shivering greenhorn. Killy, cried Queequeg, twisting his tattooed face into an unearthly expression of disdain. Ah, him bevy smally fishy. Queequeg no killy smally fishy. Queequeg killy big whale. Look you, roared the captain. I'll killy you, you cannibal. If you try any more of your tricks aboard here, so mind your eye. But it so happened just then that it was high time for the captain to mind his own eye. The prodigious strain upon the mainsail had parted the weather sheet, and the tremendous boom was now flying from side to side, completely sweeping the entire after part of the deck. The poor fellow whom Queequeg had handled so roughly was swept overboard. All hands were in a panic, and to attempt snatching at the boom to stay it seemed madness. It flew from right to left, and back again, almost in one ticking of a watch, and every instant seemed on the point of snapping into splinters. Nothing was done, and nothing seemed capable of being done. Those on deck rushed toward the bows, and stood eyeing the boom as if it were the lower jaw of an exasperated whale. In the midst of his consternation, Queequeg dropped deathly to his knees, and crawling under the path of the boom, whipped hold of a rope, secured one end to the bulwarks, and then flinging over like a lasso, caught it round the boom as it swept over his head. And at the next jerk, the spar was that way trapped, and all was safe. The schooner was run into the wind, and while the hands were clearing away the stern bow, Queequeg, stripped to the waist, darted from the side with a long, living arc of a leap. For three minutes or more, he was seen swimming like a dog, throwing his long arms straight out before him, 
and by turns revealing his brawny shoulders through the freezing foam. I looked at the grand and glorious fellow, but saw no one to be saved. The greenhorn had gone down, shooting himself perpendicularly from the water. Queequeg now took an instant's glance around him, and seeming to see how matters were, dived down and disappeared. A few minutes more he rose again, one arm still striking out, and with the other dragging a lifeless form. The boat soon picked him up. The poor bumpkin was restored. All hands voted Queequeg a noble trump. The captain begged his pardon. From that hour, I clove to Queequeg like a barnacle. Yea, till poor Queequeg took his long, last dive. Was there ever such unconsciousness? He did not seem to think that he had all deserved a medal from the humane and magnanimous societies. He only asked for water, fresh water, something to wipe the brine off. That done, he put on dried clothes, lighted his pipe, and leaning against the bulwarks and mildly eyeing those around him, seemed to be saying to himself, it's a mutual joint stock world in all meridians. We cannibals must help these Christians. Chapter 14 Nantucket Nothing more happened on the passage worthy of mentioning. So, after a fine run, we safely arrived in Nantucket. Nantucket Take out your map and look at it. See what a real corner of the world it occupies. How it stands there, away offshore, more lonely than the Eddystone lighthouse. Look at it. A mere hillock, an elbow of sand, all beach, without a background. There's more sand there than you would use in 20 years as a substitute for blotting paper. Some games and whites will tell you that they have to plant weeds there. They don't grow naturally. That they import Canadian thistles. That they have to send beyond seas for a spy of a stock, a leak, and an oil cask. The pieces of wood in Nantucket are carried about like bits of the true cross of Rome. The people there plant toadstools before their houses to get under the shade in the summertime. That one blade of grass makes an oasis. Three blades in a day's walk a prairie. That they wear quicksand shoes. Something like Laplander snowshoes. That they are so shut up, belted about, every way enclosed, surrounded, and made an utter island of by the ocean. That to their very chairs and tables small clams will sometimes be found adhering as to the backs of sea turtles. But these extravaganzas only show that in Nantucket there's no Illinois. Looking out at the wondrous traditional story of how this island was settled by the red men, thus goes the legend. 
In olden times, an eagle swooped down upon the New England coast and carried off an infant Indian in his talons. With loud lament, the parents saw their child born out of sight over the wide waters. They resolved to follow in the same direction, setting out in their canoes. After a perilous passage, they discovered the island, and there they found an empty ivory casket, the poor little Indian skeleton. What wonder, then, that these Nantucketers, born on a beach, should take to the sea for a livelihood. They first caught crabs and quahogs in the sand. Growing bolder, they waded out with nets for mackerel. More experienced, they pushed off in boats and captured cod. And at last, launching a navy of great ships on the sea, explored this watery world, put an incessant belt of circumnavigations around it, peeped in at the Bering Straits, and in all seasons and all oceans declared everlasting war with the mightiest animated mass that has survived the flood, most monstrous and most mountainous, that Himalayan salt sea mastodon, clothed with such portentousness of unconscious power that his very panics are more to be dreaded than his most fearless and malicious assault. And thus are these naked Nantucketers, these sea hermits, issuing from their anthill in the sea, overrun and conquered the watery world like so many Alexanders, parceling out among them the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian Oceans, as the three pirate powers did Poland. Let America add Mexico to Texas and pile Cuba upon Canada. Let the English overswarm all India and hang out their blazing banner from the sun. Two-thirds of this terraculous globe are the Nantucketers. For the sea is his. He owns it. As emperor's own empires. Other seamen having but a right of way through it. Merchant ships are but extension bridges. Armed ones but flowing forts. Even pirates and privateers, though following the sea as highwaymen, the road, they put plunder on other ships, other fragrance of the land like themselves, without seeking to draw their living from the bottom of the deep itself. The Nantucketer, he alone resides and riots on the sea. He alone, in Bible language, goes down to it in ships, to and fro plowing it as his own special plantation. There is his home. There lies his business, which a Noah's flood would not interrupt, though it overwhelmed all millions in China. He lives on the sea, as prairie cocks in the prairie. He hides among the waves. He climbs them as chamois hunters climb the Alps. For years he knows not the land, so that when he comes to it at last, it smells like another world, more strangely than the moon would to an earthsman. With a landless gull, 
that at sunset folds her wings and is rocked to sleep between billows so at nightfall the Nantucketer, out of sight of land, furls his sails and lays him to rest, while under his very pillow rush herds of walruses and whales. Chapter 15 Chowder It was quite late in the evening when the little moss came snugly to anchor, and Queequeg and I went ashore so we could attend to no business that day, at least none but a supper in bed. The landlord of the Spouter Inn had recommended us to his cousin, Jose Jose, of the Tripods, whom he asserted to be the proprietor of one of the best-kept hotels in all Nantucket, and moreover, he assured us that his cousin Jose, as he called him, was famous for his chowders. In short, he plainly hinted that we could not possibly do better than try potluck at the tripods. But the directions he had given us about keeping a yellow warehouse on our starboard hand till we opened a white church to the larboard, and then keeping that on the larboard hand till we made a corner three points to the starboard, and that done, then asked the first man we met there where the place was. These crooked directions of his very much puzzled us at first, especially as, at the outset, Queequeg insisted that the yellow warehouse, our first point of departure, must be left on the larboard hand, or as I had understood Peter Coffin to say, it was on the starboard. However, by dint of beating about a little in the dark, and now and then knocking up a peaceable inhabitant to inquire the way, we at last came to something which there would be no mistaking. Two enormous wooden pots, painted black and suspended by asses' ears, swung from the cross trees of an old topmast, planted in front of an old doorway. The horns of the cross trees were sawed off on the other side, so that this old topmast looked like a little gallows. Perhaps I was oversensitive to such impressions at the time, but I could not help staring at this gallows with a vague misgiving. A sort of crick was in my neck as I gazed up to the two remaining horns. Yes, two of them. One for Queequeg and one for me. It's ominous, thinks I. A coffin, my innkeeper, upon landing in my first whaling port, tombstone staring back at me in the whaleman's chapel, and here a gallows, and a pair of prodigious black pots, too. Are these last throwing out but oblique hints touching Tophet? I was called from these reflections by the sight of a freckled woman with yellow hair and a yellow gown, standing in the porch of the inn, under a dull red lamp swinging there that looked much like an injured eye, and carrying a brisk scolding of a man in a purple woolen shirt. Get along with you, she said to the man, or I'll be combing ye. Come on, said Queequeg, said I. All right, there's Miss Hussey. 
And so it turned out, Mr. Hosey Hussey, being from home, believing Miss Hussey entirely competent to attend to all his affairs. Upon making known her desires for a supper and a bed, Mrs. Hussey, postponing further scolding for the present, ushered us into a little room, and seating us at a table spread with relics of a recently concluded repast, turned round to us and said, Clam or cod? What's that about cods, ma'am? said I, with much politeness. Clam or cod, she repeated. A clam for supper. A cold clam. Is that what you mean, Miss Hussey? says I. That's a rather cold and clammy reception in the wintertime, ain't it, Miss Hussey? But being in a great hurry to resume the scolding, the man in the purple shirt, who was waiting for it in the entry, and seeming to hear nothing but the word clam, Miss Hussey hurried towards the open door leading to the kitchen, bawling out, clam for two, disappeared. Queequeg, said I, do you think that we can make out a supper for us both on one clam? However, a warm, savory steam from the kitchen served to belie the apparently cheerless prospect before us. But when that smoking chowder came in, the mystery was delightfully explained. Oh, sweet friends, hearken to me. It was made of small, juicy clams, scarcely bigger than hazelnuts, mixed with pounded chip biscuit and salted pork cut up into little flakes, the whole enriched with butter and plentifully seasoned with pepper and salt. Our appetites being sharpened by the frosty voyage, and in particular, Queequeg seeing his favorite fishing food before him, and the chowder being surpassingly excellent, we dispatched it with great expedition. When leaning back a moment, and bethinking me of Mrs. Hussey's clam and cod announcement, I thought I caught with great emphasis and resumed my seat. In a few moments the savory steam came forth again, but with a different flavor, and a good time of fine cod chowder was placed before us. We resumed business, and while plying our spoons in the bowl, thinks I to myself, I wonder now if this here has any effect on the head. What's that stultifying saying about chowder-headed people? But look, Queequeg, Ain't that a live eel in your bowl? Where's your harpoon? Fishiest of all fishy places with the tripods, which well deserved its name. For the pots, there were always boiling chowders. Chowder for breakfast, chowder for dinner, chowder for supper, till you began to look for fish bones coming through your clothes. The area before the house was paved with clamshells. His hussy wore a polished necklace of codfish vertebra, and hussy hussy had his account books bound in superior old sharkskin. There was a fishy flavor to the milk, too, though I could not at all account for. 
till one morning happening to take a stroll along the beach among some fishermen's boats. I saw Hosi's brindled cow feeding on fish remnants and marching along the sand with each foot in a cow's decapitated head, looking very slipshod, I assure you. Supper concluded, we received a lamp and directions from this hussy concerning the nearest way to bed. But as Queequeg was about to precede me up the stairs, the lady reached forth her arm and demanded his harpoon. She allowed no harpoon in her chambers. Why not, said I. Every true whaleman sleeps with his harpoon, but why not? Because it's dangerous, says she. Ever since young Stig's coming from that unfortunate voyage of his, when he was gone four years and a half, with only three barrels of isle, and found dead in my first floor back, with his harpoon in his side. Ever since then I allow no warders to take such dangerous weapons in their rooms at night. So, Mr. Queequeg, for she had learned his name, I will just take this here iron and keep it for you till morning. But the chowder, clam or cod tomorrow for breakfast, men. Both, says I, and let's have a couple of smoked herring by way of variety. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.